while we pray. Father, we ask please, uh, since there's such a strong warning here about false teaching, that you'd pray that you'd protect us from it. Pray that I'd get it right tonight. You'd help us to be wise, to listen well to what you've got to say, to discern what's true and what's not. And we pray, please, that you might protect us from lies, from those who would deceive us and steal away the salvation that you have won for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. If you don't mean me, my name's Joe, Joe Wilchie. I'm the Senior Minister here. Really glad uh, you're with us tonight. Now, one of the things Australia is world-renowned for is how dangerous a place this is to live uh, because of the wildlife. Uh, nine of the ten world's deadliest snakes live in this country. Have you ever been bitten by one? You have? A million times and you're still alive. Well, well, that's amazing. Uh, you, got, you got very, very lucky. Uh, we got the killer snakes, we got killer spiders, we got great white sharks, we got crocodiles around every corner lurking, waiting to pounce. And it's quite amusing because hardly anybody dies from them and most of us have only seen these deadly creatures in the zoo behind thick glass and uh, we feel pretty safe and protected. Uh, as we return to, to Peter this week, we come to a grave warning about a danger far greater than any physical danger we can face in this land. A grave danger which won't just take our lives from this world, but will even destroy them uh, and lead us to the danger of the fires of hell in the next. Uh, a danger which the scriptures continually and persistently and consistently warn us about, and a danger none of us want to hear about, we just don't care, or we think, is that right? And we get our hackles up about it when it's mentioned, as was proven when I preached on this passage three weeks ago at Morning Church. I got letters from people who weren't even at church about the sermon. There you go. So we're on going for it tonight, and uh, I'm going to go stronger than I did then. The great danger to you as a believer, to me as a believer, and to us as a church that the scriptures warn about almost more than anything else, is false teachers. Uh, we don't like to believe it's the case. We don't uh, like thinking that we may be in danger and we don't even consider the possibility that even St Barnabas, this great bastion of truth in the southwest, might be taken down the broad road that leads to destruction. But nevertheless, God warns us about this issue and so we've got to hear God's warning. And especially so because of what we saw last week in chapter 1, that the knowledge of the truth is the foundation for everything that we have as Christians. Knowing Jesus gives us grace from God. It gives us peace with God. Knowing Jesus brings life. It, it, knowing him enables us to live for God. Knowing Jesus gives us the hope of heaven. And so what did he say last week? You've got to remember. You've got to remember. You've got to remind each other. You've got to keep remembering the truth. So take the truth away, distort it, forget it, lose it, and everything is gone. And Peter warns us here in chapter 2 that if we're unprepared, then we're going to fall victim to lies and liars who are going to masquerade as teachers of truth and who are going to steal everything from us. It's not pleasant, but he says three things in chapter 2. False teachers are going to come. They're going to be destroyed. And then he goes into detail about what to watch out for. What are they like? So first thing that Peter says is that false teachers will come. It's not a maybe. It's not a vague possibility. Uh, it's not just theoretically possible but highly implausible like the warning about being bitten by death adder while walking around the streets of Ingleburn. He says it will happen. Verse 1. 
But there are also false prophets among the people, and just as there will be false teachers among you. It's not just outside famous personalities. It can even come up from within the ranks. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they have made up. Now notice a few things about what he says. Notice there's a historical precedent. Just as there were false prophets among the people, there will be false teachers among you. He's talking about Israel in the Old Testament. That's who the people are. And you might think, well, when? When? It didn't happen very often, did it? It's, I don't remember the false prophets popping up all over the place. But actually, when you, you start reading through, it happened all the time through Israel's history. Earliest example I could think of, and you may be able to think of earlier examples, uh, was Korah. Korah and his mates uh, in Numbers chapter 16, who tried to take the whole of Israel away from Moses. Uh, they thought they could deliver God's promises and that Moses was a loser who was just leading them to death, uh, going round and round and round the desert. They said, God has blessed us, we will lead the people, you can get stuffed. But in the end, Korah and his friends were swallowed up by the ground when they challenged Moses to a showdown. They lost big time. There was Balaam, we read about in the passage, and remember this is a time when uh, Elijah was the only prophet of God in Israel, but there were 450 prophets of Baal uh, who held the nation's attention and led them to apostasy, king and all. Everyone was deceived by them. Uh, king Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings 27 was mentored by 400 prophets who were all liars, who led the nation into ruin and the king to his death. There was Hananiah, the false prophet, who pilloried Jeremiah for speaking doom and gloom and who everyone loved because he spoke of peace and joy and freedom for all. It's all going to be okay. The judgment's not going to come because God told me, follow me, ignore Jeremiah. But he lied. And Peter says it is going to be no different for us, that false teachers will come. Now he's talking a long time ago and I want to say that they, yes, they will still come, but they have come. Notice what they do. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. They tell lies in the name of God, but they do not know God. And at least at the outset, they're not up front denouncing God in his ways. They're not saying, you know, rip up your Bible, some, some are there, but most of the time they introduce their lies secretly in sneaky ways, slipping in one bit at a time, them building up a whole edifice that's based on error. Uh, I mean, if we had a guest preacher next week who got up and said Jesus never existed or that Buddha is God, I hope that they would be booed off, that um, Mitch and some of the other big boys would come and tackle them uh, <laughs> and uh, there might be a bit of a pounding outside <laughs> um, and then Gav would have to work out if he's going to join in or whether he's going to arrest Mitch. Anyway, <laughs> But it, but it never comes like that. See, what are the best lies? I mean, if you're going to tell a lie, what's the best kind of lie you can tell? A half-truth. A half-truth. And that is how they operate. Half-truths which turn out to be whole lies. Even in the end, denying Jesus himself who they purport to serve. Denying his teaching denying his divinity, denying his salvation in his death and resurrection. 
I mean, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 and 11 warn about the same thing. I mean, the false, the super apostles who are going to come, are going to masquerade as angels of life. They're going to preach about Jesus, the Spirit, and the Gospel. But it's not the right Jesus, and it's not the right Spirit, and it's not the right Gospel. But can you tell from the words they use? They talk about Jesus all the time, and the Gospel all the time, and the Holy Spirit all the time, but they're false teachers who are going to lead you to hell. You cannot tell just by the terminology. But notice also here how effective he says they're going to be. Verse 2, many will follow their shameful ways and bring the truth into disrepute. This isn't some minor problem. Great masses get sucked in by them. So much so that people who actually speak the truth are considered to be the liars. Notice finally their motivation. It's all for themselves and their own interests. Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with stories they have made up. They want you to be theirs so they can use you and they will say whatever you want to hear in order to get you to listen to them. They'll make up amazing stories about how God is with them and how many people have become Christians through them or how God has spoken and what he's told me about you. And, And we need to be prepared lest we be taken in by them. But before he gets into detail about what these people are like and how you're going to spot them and how they operate and how you might recognise them and understand, there's a ray of light in this dark passage. There's some good news here. The good news, God will not be mocked and he will judge and destroy them in the end. Not so good is the fact that they will take everyone that they've seduced with them into destruction. Second half, verse 3. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And what follows is a list of examples showing how much God cares about this sort of thing happening, how he's acted in the past, how he's acted in the history of Israel to destroy those who would oppose him and lead his people astray. And he gives three examples, two of them very familiar, if you know your Old Testament or you went to Sunday school. One of them, not so familiar. And he starts with the unfamiliar one, verse 4. See if you can work this one out. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And you think, hang on, that was in... Um, uh, um, that was in, uh, was that in the book of Hezekiah? That's not, that doesn't exist, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is he talking about? Some, some think he could be talking about the Nephilim, uh, who we heard about a few weeks ago in the time leading up to Noah, the sons of God who uh, took the daughters of man in Genesis 6 and then these Nephilim were around uh, and it all led to the great sin and the coming of the flood. Could be. Some think it's a reference to the judgment prophesied on Babylon and Tyre spoken of in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 where these two mighty nations and their kings are described as angelic beings who are going to be cast down. They're the angels who are thrown down by God for their shameful, arrogant opposition to God. Could be. Some take this to be the explanation of how the demons became demons and why the devil and his minions exist, that they were angels in heaven who sinned and fell from heaven under judgment. 
If that's the case, this is the, really this and due to the only place that speak about that, and I'm not sure you could hang too much on it. I'm not convinced. I guess I would lean towards the last one. But in the end, Peter doesn't give any more information about how to work it out, and so it's just speculation. However, the point that Peter's making is absolutely plain and in your face. These angels, whoever they were, tried to deny God. They opposed him. They tried to take his glory, and God smashed them. He would not brook their contempt and opposition, and he bound them up till the judgment day, which will see them meet their final doom. God acted. God judged. And now their doom awaits. But if that example is a bit too strange to grasp, he follows that up with two very familiar examples. Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, and we should be really familiar with that at Night Church, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the uh, filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Two examples, Noah and Lot. Both saved as God's judgment was unleashed to destroy the wicked in their days. Now David's just spent three weeks uh, with us looking at Noah and the flood and so I'm not going to dwell on that example now. But suffice to say, as we've all heard, God does not muck around. He was prepared to destroy the world because of his grief over what humanity had become, that the thoughts of our hearts were wicked all the time because of the violence, because of everything that was going on. He was grieved that he had made man and unleashed his destruction. But let's think about Lot. We just read what happened, but just beforehand, uh, God had a weird conversation with Abraham, who's Lot's uncle. And he told Abraham... I'm going to destroy the town that your nephew lives in and all the neighbouring towns, Sodom, Gomorrah and some other cities for their evil wickedness. And Abraham said, God, they really can't be that bad. Why would you do that? Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you, God. Let's go down there and if we can find 50 righteous people, can you promise you won't destroy them? God says, all right, okay. He says, okay, if you're prepared to do it for 50. What about 45? Would you do it then? Would you, would you not judge them? God says, all right. He says, what about 30? What about 20? He gets down to 10. gets God down to 10 people. If there are just 10 righteous people, God will not do anything. He will withhold his hand from judgment. And each, God, each time God says, I'm going to relent. How many did they find when they went down there? One. Lot who rescued the two angels sent from God by being gang-raped by the whole town. Such was the evil of that place. And the angels said to Lot, you've got to flee, take your wife, take your daughters and go. Tonight the town's going to burn. Not just this town, all the towns around. And Lot ran. But even his wife longed to go back. And she looked around and she got destroyed with them. As the town was engulfed in fire and brimstone, which is where the phrase comes from. 
And Peter pulls out these examples of the terrifying fury of God who does destroy his enemies. You know, some say that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, that the old one is angry and mean, the new one's all, oh, soft and fluffy and cushy, oh, yeah, this is going to tickle him, oh, yeah, so cute. He wouldn't say boo to a goose, oh, you're a lovely God. Uh, well, guess what? This is the New Testament we're reading. He says, same God now, the one who is a consuming fire who destroys his enemies. But at the same time, he's also the God who saves. In each situation, uh, there are those who are his. Who He saves those who resist. He saves those who want a relationship with him and who serve him and they want to be his. And so the conclusion of these examples, these three examples in verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the righteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. If he did it in the past and he got it right each time, why would you think that God will not do it again in the future? Of course God will judge his enemies and of course God will save those who cling to the truth, who cling to Jesus. False teachers will come to seduce and destroy God's church, but God will hold them and their followers to account. Now the fun stuff. Because finally Peter spends the greatest amount of time giving us great insight into what these false teachers will do and what they will be like, how they operate so that we can see just how evil and devastating and destructive they are and so that we can know what to look out for. What are they like? First thing, they're arrogant and boastful. You know, I know what a false teacher looks like? Arrogant. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. Arrogant. Rodney Howard Brown, South African preacher in America, uh, questioned about his $50,000 Rolex watch, turned on the guy mid-church and said, Jesus had expensive perfume poured on his feet by the woman and the guy who accused him was Judas. You're Judas. You're Judas. Away from here. Get out. The arrogance. And he uses that as a sermon illustration regularly to say, don't you dare question me. In 1999, I saw Benny Hinn live in concert. Uh, he gave a one-hour talk about this wonderful, anonymous minister friend of his, uh, the incredible things that this man had done from God and, and uh, yeah, the wondrous things and he's done things that no other preacher has done and miracles and all kinds of things. He said, by the way, that's me. So give me lots of money now. Uh, and they passed the buckets around. There were 10,000 people packing in to the entertainment centre. There were thousands of people overflowing outside and the money that flowed was incredible. It seems that people are easily persuaded by bragging. Uh, Joyce Meyer, since uh, she was one I was particularly questioned about uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, I was listening to some talks just to make sure. I thought, I'll give her a chance. I'll listen to a few and stuff. But talks about the devil being her whipping boy. 
talking about slandering celestial beings and stuff, you've got to kick the devil, the dog, and stuff, and he'll flee from you because he's, he's a scum dog thing. And, you know, you just shame the demons and pff, tell them to get stuff. And you're like, God warns that the devil and his minions are real and they're your, your enemy. You, you can resist them and they will flee for you, but they are not your whipping boy. But it's not just the charismatic televangelists, it's the high church too with its pomp and ceremony and demand that everyone obey its authority rather than God's, that we stand between you and God. It's the theological liberals who say that they become so wise and have such great insight that they completely reject the Bible altogether as outdated and foolish to believe. It's just sheer arrogance. Uh, John Shelby Spong, I don't know why he's famous here, he's not famous in America where he comes from, everyone despises him, but he keeps coming out here regularly and the suck-ups who just flock to him when he says, not, nothing in the Bible actually happened and things. Um, uh, the sermon at uh, one of the Sydney Anglican churches a couple of years ago, the Easter service by this woman from Melbourne uh, on the Gospel of Luke and she said, she gave the clearest two-minute summary of Luke's gospel and then said, but that's because Luke was a man. Let me tell you about the gospel of Lucy, what she would have written. And that was the sermon on a fictitious gospel by some you know, fictitious woman. <laughs> that's ridiculous. But Peter goes on. He says they're not just arrogant. These false teachers, they're sensual and they're self-indulgent, verse 13. They will be paid back harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. You know, get it on, show off their sexual freedom and, and other freedoms. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked by, for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Uh, sexual immorality. Uh, you're probably most of you too young to remember Jim and Tammy Baker, who were tele-evangelists, the big ones of their day. They were busted for wife-swapping and going to swingers' parties. Uh, that's how they got caught out. Or greed. Uh, Ben, you want to whack up this? That whole complex there, that estate, is full of mansions. That's Joyce Meyer's home and her children's homes, all bought and paid for by the ministry. And they say, well, she's worth it. We love her and stuff. Now, I got a letter the other day saying, don't you realise that Joyce Meyer only income, doesn't get an income from the church anymore. She gets it from royalties on her books. Oh, so she's not just ripping off the people there, she's ripping off people worldwide. The only reason she's taking royalties on her books and not taking pay now is because she got busted in 2004 for getting $1.4 million from the ministry that year. And people went, uh, even the people within said, that's a bit rich and stuff. So she now does it in a way that's tax avoidable and things. The IRS have investigated her and she's classed as rank C on the... Um, uh, what's it called, the transparency transparency list and stuff. So there's, there's hidden dealings and all kinds of things. Uh, a book company have just paid out $10 million to buy the rights for all the book, paid to her personally and so on. She's getting much more from the royalties and she's making it from Christians around the world, all to live in this multi-million dollar complex with her Learjet 
uh, $10 million Learjet, driving her, and her husband drives, uh, Mercedes-Benz, top of the line, bought and paid for by you. Third characteristic Peter warns of is the nature of their teaching, which he says is hollow, deceptive, and it appeals to your sinful nature. It's hollow, deceptive, and appeals to your sinful nature. Now, they're not saying anything, and they're appealing to your basic instincts and to what you want. Verse 17, these men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. And here's the message of many of today's churches. Just do what you want. Be who you want to be. You can have it all. You can be healthy, worse than life. You can escape sin. Joyce Meyer, she says, I'm not a sinner anymore. And you're not a sinner if you're a Christian. Well, Jason's Bible study, where's Jason? You've lost him. There he is. How can you lose Jason? <laughs> they, they should know better than the rest of us because James talks to the people in, he's writing to the Christians and says, you know, wash your hands, you sinners. James thinks that Christians are sinners. Paul thinks that he's the chief of sinners, even though he's the apostle of God. You don't need to sin. You don't need to have financial burdens knowing God. He wants you to be rich. There's the questioning of the Bible and God. did God really say? Excusing us from believing and from obeying his word. Then there's the slightly more subtle version of preachers avoiding teaching anything that might be construed as hard. So you don't even have to go into sort of crazy territory to get this false teaching. You know, you just go to church where in the end there's no hell to avoid, no cost of discipleship, nothing that God calls on you to change, no committed self-sacrificial love and service of Jesus the King. It's all just vapour. And yet it's so appealing because it gives exactly what our itching ears want to hear, presenting a, a form of Christianity which is just self-help, which means you have to be no different to the world. You can chase its dreams and live its lifestyle. No demands, no price, no discipleship. And then there's the final condemnation. If they've escaped the corruption of the world, verse 20, if they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing uh, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to wallowing in the mud. Lovely picture, isn't it? If your dog goes and eats its vomiting, my old dog did that, it's disgusting. And he's saying that's what they are like. They know the truth. It's not that they don't know the truth. I mean, Simon, who was here, worked for Hillsong for more than a year. And he said, I'm sure Brian Houston understands the gospel, but he has never once proclaimed it in the pulpit. And so he is leading those people to hell. It's not a pretty picture, is it? The Apostle Peter is frank. He pulls no punches and his warning is so dire 
because if we get up in the lies and deceit, we will go down with them. And that's why it's so important from chapter 1 to remember, to be reminded, to keep reminding each other, to know the truth, to know Jesus and keep growing in that knowledge because that is the thing that will protect us. These are serious warnings which we need to take to heart. Now I just want to finish with a couple of final reflections on all this uh, and then you can ask anything you want. We can, you can see from all this that the private life of the Christian teacher and their message are intertwined and inseparable. You know, ministers are not healthcare professionals or your counsellor and staff who might be completely stuffing up their private life but oh, they're giving wise sage advice now. They're intertwined and inseparable. The truth of God transforms and so you need to know the effect that the gospel has on the life of those who are passing it on. And what someone teaches and what they live out is often going to be tied together. That's why in 1 Timothy and Titus, when you're choosing who your, your leader are you know, for church or parish council or Bible study or whatever it is, much more important than any of their oratorical skill is their lifestyle. What's their family like? Are they drunk? Uh, do they sleep around? You know, what's their kids like? Number two, a consequence of that is that you can see that Christian teaching, as the Bible describes it, has to be in the context of relationship. A Christian teacher is so much more, or is to be so much more than a lecturer giving information. They model what it means to know Christ and to live for him. And they have to be involved with us so they can challenge us where they are and so they can model to us what it's like. And so Paul will say in Thessalonians, I was like a mother to you, I was like a father to you, disciplining kids. They know him and they're with him. And so they most certainly do not see themselves as above the congregation or above questioning and above examination. If you want to know anything at all about Dave or me, how we spend our time, how things are going at home, what we do with our money, it's all open information. You are welcome to it. Third reflection. Pedigree is no indicator of rightness or truth. You cannot assume just because someone comes from a particular Bible college that they've got everything sewn up tight. Um, you can't move elsewhere and, and if you move elsewhere and end up at a new church, you can't assume that the denominational name means anything. And I went through college, more college, great college, fantastic college, highly recommend it. But five people in my year are now out of ministry. At least three of them for sexual misconduct in my year group, friends of mine. Right? You, you just cannot tell. The Anglican Church of Australia is just as bad, if not worse, for false teaching than anything I've spoken about today. That, I mean, televangelists, that kind of thing, easy targets. So Anglican Church of Australia, it's a mess. Uh, but it is far more seductive and safer looking because it masquerades behind a facade of long-standing history and moderateness. We have bishops in Australia who are openly atheists. We've got ministers who are openly gay. We've got some who've been through multiple marriages. We've got some that are seeing prostitutes. Uh, uh, I know one, I know him, who attends uh, transsexual dance parties. Uh, I know others having adulterous relationship with congregation members. And sometimes they're even celebrated and as open-minded and they're patted on the back for it and invited to stay on after they're busted. 
And add to that the, the false teaching that continues to creep in at the edges, denying sin, denying hell, denying God's ways. Uh, a, uh, a friend of a friend uh, went to an anchor church, a well-known anchor church in Sydney, been there for a month, just commenting to the mutual friend that um, it's weird, I've been there a month and I just don't think I've heard sin mentioned. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but that's a warning sign, isn't it? And I'm not trying to say that we're the bastion of truth here at St Barnabas and that no one else in the world is worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's not true. No Christian leader is sinless and has everything perfectly right. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone is sinful, me included. Uh, ministers, youth group leaders, Bible study leaders, scripture teachers are no exception. We're sinful and frail. Indeed, you should never assume, never assume just because I said something that it's automatically right. You've got to stack up everything that I say and Dave says and your Bible study leaders, youth group leaders says against the scriptures because this is the sole authority. This is the word of God. And I'm not just talking about proof texting and you know, having a sermon on this bit over here this week and then this bit over here this week. Are they solid on it? Are they working through it? Do you understand what it's actually on about? But there's a world of difference between a mistake here or there and a pattern of lifestyle and teaching which denies Jesus, the one who owns it all, the one who rules all, the one who died for sin, the one who's alive and well, the one who holds authority to judge the living and the dead and the one who will call everyone to account, which chapter 3 is about next week. This is a dire warning that we need to take to heart and it's something we need to commit ourselves to God in prayer in regards to, that he might guard us, he might protect us and he might make us to discern the wise and the true from the false. Why don't we ask God to guard us and protect us and help us? We'll sing and then you can shoot me down. Father, we pray that you would protect us from error, from lies, from those who would deceive us, from those who would exploit us, from those who would steal from us the truth of the gospel, that precious truth that Jesus alone saves, that he is the king who has died for our sins, that he has risen to New York, he has conquered all, that he might give us life with you, a new relationship, a new start, that we might be your children forever, bound for heaven and not for hell. We pray that we wouldn't be seduced by promises of health and wealth in this life that you do not promise or of ease that we can live for ourselves. The things our itching ears want to hear, please protect us from ourselves as much as from those who would speak the lies. We pray that we might love you and your ways, that we might know the truth deeper and deeper, that we might be reminded and remind each other and encourage each other to keep learning and growing in our love of the scriptures and of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of all, the one who will judge in the end. We thank you that you are righteous and that you will condemn this world opposed to you and those who would lead your people astray. We long for that day to come, but we pray that you delay just a bit more so that we might see more people saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.